Hello and welcome to the Niche Podcast for Friday, November 29th, 2013. I'm Jonathan Stark. And I'm Kelly Shaver. And we're here to talk about building apps that run everywhere using open web standards like HTML, CSS, JavaScript, REST, and JSON. This week, we discuss the highlights of APIs, a strategy guide by Daniel Jacobson of NPR. And I guess now he's at Netflix. Anyway, please stay tuned. The Niche Podcast is next. Yeah, it wasn't. Yeah, it wasn't too bad. It seemed like a no. mouthful. No, not really. It flowed pretty well. Yeah. Well, dear listener, we we we're experimenting with the extended intro description of what the heck we're doing here. <laughs> so, if you like it or hate it, let us know. But uh, I think it's. I don't know. The idea is that it's a little bit more inclusive, even though it's more specific. Yeah, it gives a little context. Where one week we may talk about JavaScript, and the next week we may talk about Rails, and, and it kind of makes things feel like a sort of, it just makes it feel less scattered. Right, right. Bring it all back around. And yes. It's the you can me- use these to accomplish our end goal. <laughs> yes, the method to the madness is exposed. Yes. And some weeks we talk about APIs. Yes, and this is one of them. Yes, so we have, a, a, I read an excellent book that I've been dying to do a review of, so we're going to do that this week. Uh, but first, we've got some housekeeping slash news to let you know about. Bit. Yeah, a little bit. Um, housekeeping. This week is Thanksgiving. You are probably listening to this with your lids half closed <laughs> <laughs> on the Friday after Thanksgiving if you're in the U.S. It's eating leftover, perhaps eating leftover turkey. Yeah, that sounds and like it. Yeah. That sounds like a good thing to do day after my, Thanksgiving. Yeah, my my favorite part about Thanksgiving is not Thanksgiving dinner itself; it's the leftovers the next day. Yeah, and, and you can sit around in front of the fire listening to podcasts, eating yeah. turkey sandwiches, and apple pie. That's the big thing here. Erica makes a stellar apple pie. Mm. Yeah, I mean, every she's an excellent cook and baker. So for me to say that the apple pie is a particular standout is really saying something. Yeah, that is because she's a really good cook. Yeah, it's ridiculous. It's a, it's. It, I'll, I will throw her under the bus and say that we've been ordering a lot of pizza ever since Maggie was born. But I guess that's to be expected. <laughs> yes. Um, she's like, she, and she she has this thing. She has this go to thing where she's like, Cooper, do you want pizza car tonight? And then he's like, Yeah, pizza car. And then it's too late. You can't can't debate it at that point. You, you can't you can't say no at that point. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Fine, pizza She's car. using him against you. <laughs> yeah, it's a subtle trick, but it, it's effective. Yeah, yeah. Uh, on the on the uh, the flip side of of uh, having a savvy partner around the house, she fixed our new dishwasher yesterday. <laughs> oh, nice. Yeah, we got a new dishwasher last week, and the damn thing broke already. No, what happened? It just wasn't uh, draining. And, oh. and when I say it like that, it makes it obvious that the first thing you would check is to see if there's a kink in the drain hose, but I didn't do that. Yeah. I Googled and YouTubed and called and et cetera, et cetera. I never climbed under the counter and actually looked, <laughs> which she did and fixed in about two seconds. Nice. So we know who the man of the house is around here. <laughs> <laughs> so she can get pizza car all she wants. Yeah. There you go. Let's see. So, uh, yeah, let's get to the housekeeping news. I don't think I don't think we have any calendar issues or recording problems for next week. No, I don't think should so. Be, should be in good shape. No travel or anything like that. Uh, so I guess just news. Uh, you mentioned that you had an update to your feathers gem, which we first talked about last week. I did, yes, and it's a it's a small update. But what I did there was uh, there was a bug that Wyatt found that I went in and fixed. And then also, uh, I made some changes to the form imports just so the form the form styles would work with the Rails default scaffolding. Oh, cool! That totally goes over my head, but <laughs> <laughs> I I get what you mean. Yeah. So now, if you have Rails generate scaffolding for your application, Feathers will work with it out of the box for the forms. So nice. I would. Gems don't only work with Rails, do they? I mean, it's a Ruby thing. It's a Ruby thing. So would it yeah. make sense for someone using, like, I don't know, Sinatra to maybe use Feathers, or is it more geared specifically to Rails? 
Uh, this particular gym requires rails, but I mean, I could change it so that it doesn't. But you can also, you know, you can just pull the just pull the CSS out of it too. Gotcha. So it's easy enough to do. Oh, that's true. Yeah. Gem. In fact, I've thought, I've, yeah, I've thought about just just um, also having a just a compiled version of the CSS. That's it. Yeah, that's a really interesting idea. That it reminds me of uh, not to go off on a tangent so early, but but uh, I suppose everyone's familiar with Modernizer uh, .js, which does a, a really good job of client side feature detection for web apps and websites. Uh, but uh, who was it? James Pierce. Geez, now I'm blanking. I think it was James Pierce who created a, a server version of it that it just added some PHP code to it, to a file that you put on the server side, and then it uses Modernizer to do feature detection on the server side. Oh yeah, I saw that. So it's really clever because I was about to write I was about to write something that did exactly that, but it didn't occur to me to use Modernizer on the server. So that piece. You, you can, you know, modernizer can keep updating and you just, you don't have to change the server component. The server component just manages the, the refresh and the cookie stuff. Right. And, and it, it just includes modernizer. So you just put a new version of modernizer up there. I was like, ah, oh, that's brilliant. And so that, that's yeah. the point is like, maybe, I don't know if the same kind of thing applies here, but you could have the feathers CSS thing be a completely standalone thing and then have the gem just kind of like point to that repo in a way, if that made sense. Hmm. You know what I mean? So like, I hadn't thought about that. I don't know if I don't know if it even makes sense in that context, but but if you know if you think of the gem as a delivery mechanism and not a like a Rails specific not delivery mechanism, itself. yeah. Hmm. Yeah, I don't know. Almost like uh, like the gem being a wrapper around the the important part. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know enough about it, but never stop me from offering an opinion <laughs> <laughs> cool and so speaking of gems uh, you you have a new one yeah yeah now that i did one i'm, I'm on a roll and i've done two <laughs> you're hooked yeah yeah and the the second one is it's extremely extremely simple and um basically it's just a little gem for like, i do when i'm doing a lot of a lot of design mockups and things like that i end up using placeholder images all over the place mm-hmm. instead of going out and actually finding stock photos for things right until I need until I need to and um, <coughs> excuse me yeah it's just a just a little gem for dumping placeholder images into your HTML mm, cool and it's um it's uh, you it's a it's a view helper and basically instead of an image tag you use this placeholder tag and you can specify height width and some colors and, and then it'll return Return the image as a as a data URL. Awesome. Yeah, so you're not cluttering up you know, you're not cluttering up your um image directory with a bunch of junk files and you don't have to make external requests mm-hmm. to a, to another website to Yeah, that's great. Uh, we uh extensively used geez, I wish I could remember the name of the site. I'll link to it in the show notes. I think it's FPO image.com or something like that. Mm-hmm. You just pass it a URL with dimensions in the URL and it returns an image with the uh, just a gray box with the the dimensions printed in the middle of it. Yeah, that's that's exactly what this does. But you can also specify colors and. That's yeah, that's awesome. You're, I mean, Pattern Lab's not a Rails thing, but you could probably port the logic and use that with uh, the upcoming project you have with Brad. Yeah. Yeah, you could you could port it to PHP because it, it uses Image Magic on the back end. So any any server side language that has a, an Image Magic library. That might be a kick-ass contribution to Pattern Lab, actually. Yeah, now that you think about it. Yeah, now that, <laughs> now that you mention it, I think I, I think I might do that. <laughs> yeah, that's a great idea. Brad would, Brad would love you for it because there's there's just tons of that at the beginning. You, it's almost on purpose. You you don't want to distract with stock photography. You want it to still look very. Well, yeah. In the template phase, you you want it to be content-free, so no one's talking about that. But it's super helpful to have the dimensions so people can say, oh, yeah, our, our skyscraper ad's going to fit there or, or whatever. Right. Right. Cool. Yeah, I may, um, I may have to fork Pattern Lab when I'm done here. <laughs> Get busy on it. There I am, making more work for you. Yeah. Cool. So I had a really interesting discovery uh, the other day. 
the, I think I mentioned uh, on the show, I submitted um, Kilo as my uh, Firefox Marketplace app. Yes. So I got I got a free developer phone for Firefox OS, and the part of the deal was I had to make at least one app and put it in the marketplace. Yeah, and and I'm still mad at you for not telling me about that. I I apologize. You know, back when I could have got a phone. You probably still could. <laughs> I can I'll email the guy and see if I can get if I have any yank. Um, <laughs> but anyway, the uh, I I posted it, and. Uh, it's just a hosted web app, but you put a manifest in there and you fill out some information in the marketplace, you know, like description and some icons. And, and so I was like, Oh, cool. And I installed it on the Firefox phone and I like the Firefox phone, but it's definitely not meant to be competitive with like an iPhone or a modern Android device. It's more, right. It's a, it's a dumb phone replacement, very cheap, very low powered technology, but you know, with a reasonably nice OS. Yeah, and then that's that's the whole point is to make a, a smartphone that's accessible to people with you know, that don't have six hundred dollars to drop on a smartphone. Yeah, exactly. So you know, it's to get the next billion people online. I think is their subtitle. But yeah. So uh, okay, so that was that, and it, and in the meantime, I use Kilo constantly. So I'm, uh, but I've been using it just as a pure web browser type application, mm-hmm. and I discovered yesterday that uh, if you launch Firefox. If you launch Firefox Marketplace in Firefox, you can save the app locally on your machine and it creates a wrapper around it that will run in a desktop environment. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's so cool. I mean, it doesn't have to just be on the phone. Right, right. So it's it's like um, a single site browser. I think those were in vogue for 10 minutes a few years ago. <laughs> where you'd create like a Gmail app that was an instance of a web browser that was just specific to one site. Yeah. And so that's what this is. Um, But it's, it's amazing how cool it is because (laughs) all of a sudden, you know, if you're familiar with uh, Mac, all of a sudden you get like um, access to the app in spotlight and in your switcher application. So you can, uh, you know, call it up just from the keyboard a lot more easily than, well, I shouldn't say a lot more, but e- more easily than browsing to the website. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, you can leave it open on the desktop and it's, there's really nothing, nothing to it. I just completely got it for free in the spirit of building HTML apps. Oh, cool. <laughs> so I, I shouldn't have brought it up before the show started. <laughs> you had to go and ruin it. I know we didn't, it didn't ring last week. I didn't. And I missed I it. Know, I, I thought about taking the phone out of here just in case. But, <laughs> but I would miss it, though. <laughs> yeah. But no, that's that's really cool. Does does the Firefox desktop applications does it support full screen apps? I can tell you that in one second. Because I can quickly launch this native there application. I don't think it through does. Spotlight. Yes, through Spotlight. Um, oh, actually, it's an, I haven't opened it yet on this machine, so check this out. Mm-hmm. Uh Here's uh, no, it doesn't go full screen. It does not. It would be a waste with this app anyway. But uh, but yeah. Well, yeah, for that one, yeah. Yeah. Um, so the the funny thing is, and this is when I say funny, I mean intensely irritating. Mm-hmm. Um, when after I downloaded it, uh, I went to you know I went into the application directory in, on the Mac and double clicked it to open it, and it said this. Mm-hmm. This application was created by an unknown developer and won't open. Close, you know, and the button, the only option is... Oh, yeah, yeah, you have to go in and turn off Gatekeeper. Yeah, it's, it, it, but that's not, I, I'm sure that's true. I didn't do that. Um, I Googled and they, and, and found somewhere that if you right click on the app yeah. and you explicitly select open, it will open. Yeah. yeah. You can also go into the security preferences in your... Yeah, in your system, perfectly doesn't disable gatekeeper. Gotcha. Well, and I suppose I, you know, I get the logic behind that, but it just points in such a dark direction. Yeah, it it feels like, yeah, it does. It feels like it's Apple's attempt at control. <laughs> yeah, like the iOSification yeah. of a desktop. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, that's that's system. the first thing I do when I when I install, reinstall the iOS or get a new Mac is is I go in and I disable gatekeeper. What's that? I'm looking now, just for the dear listener. Security and privacy, I'll bet you. 
Oh yeah, here it is. Yeah, there's a yeah allow up security and privacy on the general tab. There's a allow apps downloaded from. Yeah, yeah. There's no actual gatekeeper hitting in there, but I just I think that's what it was called. Gotcha. Yeah, if you actually search for it in in the system preferences search window, it'll come up. Cool. Well, there's a little tip and trick for you, gang. So that's fun. Web apps on the desktop. Are, I, I really like it. It's a small productivity increase, but uh, I just hate using the mouse and it's it's easier to tab around uh, the OS with a native application. So that's real nice. Yeah, I'm surprised you haven't made a command line client for it yet. I, you know, I totally have been thinking about that, but there's but there's one drawback and there's a feature of the, well, I guess I could do it. There's a feature of the the web client that's pretty important, or that I, I think is pretty important, which is that you can select from previous entries. And yeah. the ability to do that in the command line is super, would be super clunky. Like, you know, maybe there'd be a list command, and then I'd see this huge list of stuff with a number next to each thing, and I could type in the number. It's just like... You wouldn't really be saving any time in the long run. Yeah. I mean, it would be clever and everything and it would sort of be in keeping with our mission but it's it's like it would be kind of unusable i guess yeah. if I, I guess if i left that one feature out and i just wanted to do a quick entry well i'll think about i've been thinking about it i'll keep thinking about it but yeah i'm a huge fan of the the cli concept and finally we were talking about reviving naked day which i didn't even realize it's was a thing <laughs> Yeah, it was <clears throat> it was apparently a thing starting back in 2008 and it seems like it kind of kind of stopped in 2011. I didn't see any haven't seen any anything after that. What was it called C CSS Naked Day? Okay. And so the concept is, you know, one day a year remove all the CSS from your site. Yeah. And uh I think this is a hilarious idea. Um but I imagine that hardly anybody like this tiniest, like what's what's the smallest number in the whole wide world? That's the, the smallest number. Yeah, <laughs> that's the number of people that would actually participate. <laughs> I feel like the only people that would participate would be other developers. Oh yeah, totally. It would be hilarious if like a couple of big sites did it. You could go like Twitter. Google. Imagine if yeah, <laughs> Google. Google already has no style sheet. <laughs> <laughs> but the. Uh, the concept is is just sort of to heighten awareness about cement, writing semantic HTML and you know accessibility and that kind of thing. So, I, but yeah. what would be cool, I think, is for for um, browser people, like actual users or people browsing the internet, to be able to install like a browser plugin to try and try and surf the web, surf naked day, basically. Yeah. <laughs> that just shut automatically shut off CSS and JavaScript for every site they went to. And then they'd go to a site and they'd be like, Oh, this is sort of like the, the Apple reader version of the site, or this yeah. is the, the naked version of the site. But then it would have, that would break almost every site because most people do it wrong. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But then they could go, Oh, this site works or, or this site is, is badly broken. Or, right. And so you could, you could go to a site, you could, just quickly rate it like a stars, like zero to five. Like I was able, it was awesome. It was easy to navigate even naked or it was completely broken. And unless JavaScript was turned on, I couldn't even see anything. Yeah. And then you just, as soon as you rate the site, then boom, it goes back to its normal. Puts its clothes on. It, puts a, it gets dressed. Right? <laughs> it gets dressed. <laughs> I totally, I would totally like, I would do this for a couple hours. Like, if I would leave yeah. it on my browser for a couple of hours, and then I'd be like, okay, I have to get work done. But yeah, <laughs> I think it'd be super funny. And, and you could maybe get all kind I mean, you could probably get some fairly interesting information from, you know, just a anonymous hordes of the internet browsing around and like rating sites based on their how they look naked. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Don't get caught with your pants down. <laughs> I love this idea. I, I, yeah. I really so. I think the I th I think it's a, a little bit much to expect people to turn off their CSS on their site because it's to to spring that on unsuspecting users is probably never going to fly. Yeah, with any people are just going to think it's broken, and you could potentially lose money. And yeah, you know, others there's all kinds of ramifications of that. But just I, I really like the idea of having a browser plugin where you can just be like, hmm, I wonder how this site looks naked. <laughs> <laughs> we should do that. 
I've often wanted to remove the uh, the CSS from my site and just leave it like raw HTML because I'm always espousing that mm -hmm. anyway. But I just I just know that people come to the site and they'd be like, "This guy, what kind of developer is this guy? His site's broken." Yeah, you know. So if the if the if it's an opt in thing on the user and they they'll know the site's not broken, they're they're surfing naked. Put a little button on the site. See me naked. <laughs> that's a, that's a good idea. That's a that's another that's a nice middle ground where they can you could add like a, a little badge to your site. That, yeah. That uh, I don't know what would we call it. it. Looks good naked or something. Anyway, so dear listener, please send in your ideas or your stupid idea, great idea. Said, please send in. I thought you were going to ask for a naked photo. <laughs> please send in your send naked, naked photos of your website. Your naked thoughts. All right. Before we go too far into that territory, yeah. <laughs> shall we move on to the featured content for this week? Uh, we probably should. Yeah. Okay. So this week, I uh, I have been really excited to talk about this for a while, and just haven't been able to fit it in, but. Uh, Maybe a month ago, I read a book by Daniel Jacobson and uh, Greg Braille and Dan Woods called APIs, a Strategy Guide. And it is an O'Reilly book. And in my, in keeping with some of my favorite O'Reilly books of all time, it's really short. It's like 134 pages all told. Mm -hmm. And it is, it is really one of, I think it's one of the best tech books I've ever read. Wow. It is the perfect combination of um, strategy and tactics and real world based on real world experience. And it, and it's just nice and short. It gets right to the point. It's very specific. There's, you know, it's, it's great. Um, and I would, I almost just said, if you're interested in APIs or your company's interested or thinking about building an API, then you should read it. But there, I, I, it's hard for me to imagine a company that shouldn't be thinking about building APIs. Yeah. Uh, and that is, so the first half of the book is really about strategy. It's kind of like um, why you should care about APIs as a business, what, what transformation uh, has been, you know, so companies who have adopted an API strategy, the, the kind of transformation it's enabled in their companies. And, you know, kind of like the first half of the book is kind of like convincing your, your upper management, why it's a good thing and that you'd be crazy not to do it. Right. And then the sort of, I guess, middle, the second half of the book is sort of like pragmatic advice for developers. It doesn't get down to the code level, really he shows URIs and stuff, but uh, just talks about being pragmatic and the kind of considerations you need and differences between, uh, you know, XML and JSON, when one's a good one, the other one's good and yeah, all sorts of really specific advice, uh, about that. And then in the third half of the book, <laughs> third half. yeah, it's a bonus half. Nice. They talk about, um, considerations for APIs at scale, like sort of, Sort of like um, this, this, a bundle of stuff that you probably don't think about the first time you build an API. Uh -huh. So like legal ramifications, uh, who owns the content if you're taking submissions from the public, uh, throttling, um, security considerations. There's all sorts of, it's like a grab bag of, oh my God, I'm glad I didn't have to learn that the hard way stuff. <laughs> uh, so really, really good book. Um, for those who aren't familiar with the Daniel Jacobson name, he... Sounds familiar. Yeah, we've talked about him before, actually. He uh, was the guy... I wouldn't say that he architected the Create Once, Publish Everywhere platform for um, NPR. He may have, but I don't know. I know he, he evangelized it, and he went around talking about it, and I have quoted him many times uh, in talks about uh, APIs and, and sort of he's got just a ton of great slides uh, with this cope strategy. And he, and one of the, the series of slides is like taking a particular NPR story and, and showing it in every single, well, not every single, but, but maybe a dozen or two dozen uh, different clients that consume the API. 
Right. And it's it's super eye-opening for any business when they see like it's a Winnie the Pooh story and they have it on they have it in the info in iTunes on the podcast episode and they have it in the npr.org iOS app and they have it on a mobile web, partner mobile website and a partner desktop site and their desktop site and and it looks completely different everywhere but you can still see that it's the same story. So it's it's a yeah. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Yeah, I mean, it, it drives the point home. The guy completely knows what he's talking about. But since then, he has gone on to Netflix, where they get over a billion API requests per day. So to say the guy knows how to operate at scale, I think, is an understatement. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, okay, so I wanted to go into um, uh, some specific points. I'm actually going to put up, just a, a notes on the book type blog post um, by the time it'll be up by the time you hear this dear listener uh, unless I'm lying like I was last time <laughs> <laughs> but it should be up on my site we'll link to it in the show notes um, unless you eat too much turkey yeah but you should really just order the book it's like is completely killer I almost every other page I've got like highlights and underlines and it's great um, okay, so I just wanted to, let's see, I've got a bunch of strategic considerations that he points out and, and a couple, I'll just call out a couple of them. Uh, first, you remember, we've had a couple of conversations in the past about um, like, well, if you design your web application in a RESTful fashion, it can be your API and we kind of get into the conversation about like whether that's a, yeah. if that's an advantage or a disadvantage or if that gains you anything or if it's holding you back. And it's always sort of rubbed me the wrong way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's sort of hard to articulate why, but in, in my experience it ends up that you have to add on kind of like a superset, like the API could be a subset of your website URL, URL structure, yeah. but, but you're almost always going to have URLs on the website that don't make sense in the API. Right. Right. So you'll end up with, Sure, you can use some of the website URLs in your API, but then you always you end up with others that the, the API request to them would not work, and it it just feels kind of kind of confusing, you know, for from an API consumption point of view. Right, and so he, he articulates exactly the sort of spider sense feeling that I was getting, which is that the that there's a, obviously there's a lot of similarities between an API and a website, you know, it's like HTTP requests over the network and retrieving structured data. But the big difference for him is that with uh, an API, there is a, an implied contract with the c- people who are consuming it, that you're not going to mess around with it. Mm. And a website that does not exist. Everyone. So like everybody expects websites to update all the time. And maybe not just content, you know, you can... URLs change. And, yeah, yeah, URLs change or the navigation structure will change. Uh, what The things you're placing emphasis on in the site will change. Maybe you're doing A-B testing. There's a million things that could change. And people just adapt to that. They're really good at pattern recognition and finding their way around. But machines suck at that uh, by comparison. So for, you know, if an API is for machines to talk to each other, which really is what it is, then... Uh, you there's this sort of unspoken or in in fact he advises in the book to make it not unspoken uh make a contract with the developer so to speak that you won't change the interface you can change stuff under the hood the way it works and increase performance or whatever but Mm -hmm. don't change the surface layer and that completely sums up what my my creepy feeling was (laughs) about using the the a, a website as an API. Not that I haven't yeah. done it. I have done it, but it gives me a. There feels like a tight coupling there that creeps me out. Yeah, yeah. I I have done it in the past in the interest of like speed, just because I'm in a hurry to get something done, mm-hmm. have a tight deadline or, or something like that. Mm-hmm. But I kind of I, I I agree. It feels it feels a little weird. Absolutely. Uh, so another thing you, in the in the strategic section where he's sort of trying to make the case for APIs, he sort of he, he I've got a whole bunch of points here that all kind of boil down to the same thing, which is that um, APIs allow you to be your business to be incredibly flexible, and mm-hmm. 
that we're rapidly moving from a billion connected, roughly a billion connected devices to a trillion, like in the next five years or so. And customers are, you know, obviously that's mobile and, and native is a big deal on mobile and people are going to move past browser-based apps. They're not going to do everything in browser-based apps like we did on the desktop. Uh, native apps are definitely here to stay. And f if you want to uh, respond to market needs really quickly, then an API is, I mean, I mean, cope is an app name. It's like a coping strategy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so that's, that's a big deal. And he points out, he gives examples like Twitter and Google and Netflix, eBay, Salesforce. They get more than half of their traffic. And this is in 2011. They get more than half of their traffic through APIs. And you can imagine, you yeah. know, the book is from 2011. So you can imagine in two years that Netflix's growth has has been big. So I'm sure they're getting yeah. more than a billion calls per day. So APIs are a great way to support multiple devices. Uh, it's a great way to be where your customers are um, to, you know, he, he makes a, another great point uh, elsewhere that um, if you like APIs allow you to capitalize on a market niche really quickly and that the market is changing so fast that if you if you take the time to do sort of old school waterfall development, you like analyze the market opportunity and then you spec out a design and then you build it. By the time you're done, the it's probably the, gone. The market's moved on. Yeah, that's a that's a really interesting point that I hadn't thought of before, but you're right, it does. It gives lets you lets you very quickly get something out there. Yeah, it's I've seen it a, a million times. Like how many times you had an idea for something and then like two weeks later someone does it. Yeah. And you're like, oh, well, I'm glad it exists, but I wish I did it. Yeah, that happens with every idea I have. <laughs> it's kind of like the, it's kind of like the, 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 the reality, the, the harsh reality of the internet is that you're, you're like, there's no such thing as a unique idea. Yeah. It's all about execution. So let's see, there's, I mean, there's a bunch of points that I pull out in the, in the blog post. You can check it out. Um, but, uh. I guess the last strategic one um, was, I, I think, really powerful. Uh, he talks about the API needing to support the core mission of the business. Like, it's not it's not just an app or a feature that you're going to add. You're not going to, like, create an API and all of a sudden developers are going to come flocking to your door. <laughs> you know, you need to have... Um, an API gives access to content and services, and if there's no demand for the content and services really, then the API is not going to, you know, spur that there needs to already be like a pent up demand for right. access to the data. And you probably have data like that to support your core mission elsewhere. And that is the data that you should expose via the API. So uh, the example that he gives is the New York times where they, they had a hard time getting the API team had a hard time getting traction with the API until they positioned it as supporting the core mission of the paper, which is to collect, create, and distribute information. Mm -hmm. The old school dudes, would, when they thought about collect, create, and distribute information, they were thinking about like, you know, the bullpen and newspapers in trucks and delivered to people's doors. But when they're like, no, this is like in its purest form, the API will collect, uh, it allows people to collect, create, and distribute information. And they were like, oh, and then it sort of clicked for them yeah. and has, has been, you know, uh, yeah. a, a good thing. So business leaders in the audience, if you're not thinking about APIs, you should be. Uh, cool. Okay. So probably, probably the more interesting part of this conversation are some of the technical things that he brings up. Mm-hmm. And there are a bunch that we have discussed at length in the past. So it <laughs> kills me that I didn't read this book two years ago when it came oh, out. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But it would have saved us a lot of headache. Yeah, we, we've we gone back and forth about where to, how to do security, uh, where to put it, versioning, HADOs, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, interested listeners or new listeners can go back to the Honey Nut HADOs episode for <laughs> yes. a deep dive on that. Uh, so I'm just going to like run down a list. We don't have to like go crazy on this, but um, uh, maybe the most interesting one to me was that he talks about pure rest, meaning mm -hmm. sort of uh, hypertext as engine or whatever it stands for. Uh, but he talks about pure, the pure rest principle of 
no versioning for your API and that front-end developers shouldn't be hard-coding URLs to your or URIs to your API endpoints. They should just call the API. The API should return All URLs. All self-discovery. Yeah. Yeah. And we talked about that a lot, and I do like it in concept, but it, it doesn't, it, it's like it's, something feels wrong about it. And again, Jacobson completely surfaces the thing that drives me crazy about it or the thing that scares me about it. Okay. Which what, is... What, what scares you? Because I, 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 I like it in theory, but in practice, nah, it, yeah. So I'm, I'm curious to see what, it's, it's what a, he says here. It's a different contract with the developer. It's, it's, it's like saying, it's like the, the server, the API developer saying, I can do whatever I want and you have to conform to like, if, like, right, it, like you have to figure it out. Yeah. So it's harder to, it's harder to navigate around at first. There's a, a little bit more barrier to entry and there's more work for the client side developer. They, you know, hard coding is easy. Hard coding URLs is easy and it, and and there's nothing here's the kicker there's nothing about hadios that prevents the client side developer from hard coding yeah so if they do hard code and the the api changes and the client application breaks then it's kind of like the api developer is like well i told you not to do that yeah you know it's kind of like uh it, it uh, i don't know it's like you're it's like you're um, ignoring all of your responsibility to to your the people that are consuming your API. You're abdi- you're completely sidestepping it. You're like, and, yeah. and that's why it's attractive to an API developer because they're like, oh, we can do whatever the heck we want, whenever we want, and if people are stupid, then that's their problem. But yeah, but in reality, that that doesn't work. Yeah, exactly. So he, what he talks about is a more pragmatic. Re- he actually calls it pragmatic rest, and and freely admits that it's not rest at all <laughs> really <laughs> it's it's the kind of rest that we're all used to seeing mm-hmm. uh and he i'll just list a couple of things and we can sort of like uh, weigh in on whether we think it's good or bad although i can spoiler alert i think they're all good um but it, basically in a nutshell it's more rigid on purpose mm-hmm. it's incredibly important to to honor the contract, you know, like maintain yeah. backwards compatibility of the interface. Uh, and, and it's like, to, if, what am I, God, I don't know how to say this, but the, the API developer should always be highly aware or scared of the fact that if they accidentally change something or on purpose change something in the API, it's going to break somebody's stuff. Right. Yeah. You should never have the feeling that you could, as on the API side, that you can just go around changing stuff willy nilly and it doesn't matter. Right, and you know, constraints are good. <laughs> yeah, basically. Um, so he lists a, a bunch of principles of this. Um, he says URIs matter, like well-designed URI patterns make it easy to uh, make an API easy to consume, discover, and extend. Uh, so he embraces the the typical use of the verbs and the the REST um, style uh, URI structure. So you have like. Mm-hmm. Res- plural resource and you can post to that to create new ones and slash ID to retrieve a specific one and put slash ID to update a particular one. Like he's, he's down with all that. And he thinks that you, you know, he's basically saying you should make your API as guessable as possible. Yeah. Uh, which I, I totally agree with. Um, the data format matters uh, so again, you should don't, honestly, I think this is like uh, a request for people not to be too clever, which I'm definitely guilty of at times, but, you know, just make, make your return, you know, if it's JSON, make your names obvious, you know, make the, you know, just make it easy as possible. Yeah. Um, a side note there that, uh, we're both big fans of JSON and, and, and think XML is, <laughs> generally not uh, a good thing for, i think it has its uses for more more complex data structures that, yeah, exactly that's exactly what he says there's some types of data that are incredibly complicated and they're already well-defined uh, grammars and libraries for parsing those grammars mm-hmm. so when you are in a situation like that then xml is is a much better fit yeah so, yeah i would agree with that 
yeah, that was a, that was a light bulb moment for me because I would tend not, I've never been in that situation where I was like, Oh, I need to transmit. I don't know. Uh, like who knows math ML over the, over the wire. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> something like that he he in the book he talks about financial transaction information which is a very well defined and has a long history uh he also talks about uh optional parameters which i've struggled with uh mm-hmm. over the years he doesn't get too specific with it he's like just you know have a standard set of easy to guess optional parameters for things like searching or or sorting pagination, pagination yeah. yep stuff like that uh, return codes matter. I definitely agree with this mm-hmm. one. Yep. Don't return a freaking 200 for everything. <laughs> yes. That is annoying. Um, it's a, it's, it, you may have had this uh, issue in the past. It developers in, uh, whatever language you're programming in. If you, if you're capturing returns from whatever it is, a call to a function or an Ajax request, and you're in that pattern where you have to like sniff the sniff the data to see if it returned an error or returned the thing you asked for. Mm-hmm. And return codes uh, get around that, so you you never have to pollute your data. You can just you can check the headers or like an AJAX request automatically going to go to the error handler instead of uh, like in your success. Just as right. an example, in your AJAX you, in your success handler, you don't have to if you're returning the proper uh, return codes you don't have to pollute your success handler with like, what if there was an error? Right. Right. You don't have to, you can, you can set up, uh, you have your success handler and you can also set up handlers for specific return codes. Right. It's kind of like throwing an exception in PHP or in JavaScript where you don't, you know, if everything goes well, then like you don't have to check for any, for things not going well inside your success handlers. Right. Which is huge. So that's a big deal. Uh, and then at that point, he says everything else should be hidden. So things like security, rate limiting, routing, and stuff like that should all be in the headers. Mm-hmm. And what about we, versioning? What does he say about versioning? Yeah, big big section on versioning. So first he says you should version. Uh, it should be in the URL and it should be obvious. So he doesn't make any prescription about whether it should be a subdomain or it should be uh, in the actual URL. But he, from his examples, he seems to advocate the sort of you know, uh, domain name slash V one slash people slash whatever, you know? So like, um, this is just something we're bad about not doing. Yeah, that's true. Um, and he, he says that the version number, so he says a bunch of things about versioning. So first of all, he's a huge fan of it. He thinks you should definitely be doing it and thinking about it because it makes it easier for you to honor the contract. Mm-hmm. Um, he does say that you should do everything possible to avoid incrementing the version. So at, at all costs, try not to increment it up and that you should never hit. If you're planning to hit two digits in your API version numbers, you're probably doing something wrong. You're doing it wrong. Yeah. 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 Uh, he's, you know, like, like you don't, Hey, you shouldn't update up your version number just because you patch something. If everything still works the same way for the client, the version number doesn't need to change because it doesn't matter. Precisely. Yeah. He even goes into that example exactly what you just said. Um, yeah. Don't don't update your version number every time you push a change. Uh, definitely not. Um, so the, he says the nice the, the thing about a version number that is very stable, so it doesn't change very often. Often, often that's easy for me to say. Um, is that it says it basically says to developers, you know, when you say, oh, okay, there's V two. Is available. It says to developers, please stop using the old contract and switch to the new one. But it also, maybe more importantly, says that the old one is still valid. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think that's super, super critical in terms of trying to gain adoption and, and keep developer interest. It's it's something so unfair about just like breaking. We were talking about this on the last show, like breaking backwards compatibility, I think is yeah. like, that is like a, that's bad developer <laughs> go to your room and think about what you've done <laughs> yeah yeah i think you have to have a really good reason to justify it yeah yeah there really really does and he he gives a killer example so it's it's easy for people to be like to just sort of think about their narrow um uh sort of not vertical but the, the problem space they normally find themselves in i do this all the time like like i i think that the 
future is going to be more more smaller apps, not fewer bigger apps. So in general, I lean toward making lots of small apps fast. Like that's, Mm -hmm. I feel like that is the approach. Lots of small apps that work together, not one giant app that does everything for everyone. Yeah. And, uh, where was I going with that? Oh, so, so that's the problem space that I'm usually thinking in. But if you think broader, he's got this great example that made me like really open my eyes to the broader world, which is that at Netflix, they, um, they have Netflix clients embedded in some set-top boxes. And the API version, that the, the API that the set-top box is expecting to call is hard-coded in the firmware of the set-top mm. box, which, you know, they, they Netflix can't update they can't it. can't update that, right. And a set-top box is easily on somebody's TV for five to ten years. Yeah. So they've, you know, they, they're not, they can't just break that. So... I, I was like, I, I just love that example. It's like, because pe- it's so easy to be like, well, clients should just update to the new API. We deprecated yeah, it well, five this, years this, ago. This version's three years old. Surely no one's using it now. Right. Yeah, except for those million people that are. So I love that example. Um, but that was his that was his shtick on versioning. And I will, um, I since reading the book, I have only i had don't think i've released any api code but i have started doing like the v1 folder yeah the v2 folder and just putting it right in the url and it i i actually really like it um in terms of like the way i like to work it doesn't bother me in the least so i but i do feel like i did feel like i was being bad doing that because of the sort of hadios argument but now i don't feel bad <laughs> <laughs> yeah i feel like like Hadios is like you get these these rest purists oh you have to do it this way you know in reality it's it's not that practical (laughs) yeah it's it's just not the the inequality between the two parties is the thing that bothers me about it Mm -hmm. it's like it's very much like the API developer looking down on the client developers when really it's it really does it really does feel that way yeah yeah it's um, kind of like, well, we're going to do whatever we want and, and you just have to figure it out. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, it's, I don't know. I don't like it. So, um, last thing, he just, he talked about some exceptions and he talks about uh, terms of use, terms of service and rate limiting and all that stuff. It's it's all, I could, I didn't pull out like specific pull quotes for that, but I would definitely recommend reading the book. Um, but the last the last sort of pragmatic advice he gave that I pulled out for the purpose of this talk was that um, rest is good. This sort of rest approach is good until it's not good. Mm-hmm. And when it's not good, you should feel free to, you know, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater, but you still got to get your job done. And the example right. he gives is um, like one of the problems with the rest of sort of, uh, I don't want to say pure, but like a traditional rest URI structure is that it's not great at dealing with bulk edits mm-hmm. or, or bulk changes. Uh, and they can create what's referred to as like a really chatty API. Like you have to make dozens or, or just tons of requests to the API to like draw a particular screen or to execute a particular request. And like imagine, a I don't know, imagine like an email inbox type of thing and somebody checks a box next to 20 emails and they say archive. Right. A chatty API is going to make you make 20 API calls. And he was like, he was like, you know, go ahead and optimize that stuff. It's really inefficient. Yeah, it's super inefficient. Go ahead and optimize that with bulk edits where you, where you, you know, you have like an endpoint that is expecting to get a, like a list of the URIs that you would have called. Mm Mm-hmm. And just have it execute those on the server side so the client doesn't have to make all those requests, A, and B, you know, doesn't drain their battery using all that radio <laughs> if they're yeah. on a mobile device. Oh, actually, actually, we did that on, uh, you had to implement that for the, uh, for an API. Did I? Yeah. Um, you had to import, like... A, 2,000. Yeah, like, make uh, at least 100. Yeah up to maybe a thousand calls to the API and like the initial installation of an app. And, uh, and I think 
we did like exactly this, right? Like I didn't do it, but you. Yeah, we did. We did. And we got it down to, I don't know, like six or seven. Yeah. <laughs> so a huge performance increase for the, the customer experience. And if mm-hmm. it's a desktop app, but if it was a mobile app, it would be a, a huge. Yeah. Yeah. And actually that's a, that's a point worth mentioning is if you, if you don't sort of come up with a good way to handle these bulk requests, if you're making a lot of them, we were actually running into to issues where people were, they were ended up making so many API requests that their firewalls on their computers were like, oh, nope, not going to happen. <laughs> I forgot about that. Yes. Yeah. It was like at, at 20 requests within the same like second or two and yeah. win, Windows says, oh, no, you don't. Yeah, basically they were, they were, they were DDoSing our server whenever they would. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so this, this book is a must read for anybody who's programming at full stop. It is really good. And it's nice and short. You can read it in like cool. two hours. Cool. And maybe most importantly for the developers in the crowd, it gives you a lot of great ammunition for making the case for APIs to people who are farther up the food chain, which is really nice. Uh, it addresses security concerns, uh, life cycle management, you know, for APIs that are going to be lasting for years. You know, how do you deal with that? Uh, service level agreements for part private partners. Another thing he talks about that, um, that it just occurred to me that I want to throw in before we wrap up is that a, you know how like we've often talked about the sort of three things that are involved with what we see as modern application development, mm-hmm. smart content, open APIs and starting small progressive enhancement. Yeah, yeah exactly. And he, i never, I was never a hundred percent happy with the open API headline. Mm-hmm. Um, at, at first I used to say public API cause it, like I would give this presentation to like management and they'd yeah. always get stuck on, on open APIs and, or when I first called it public APIs, they hated that idea because they were like security, you know, immediately the security flag goes yeah. up and like, yeah. well, and, and this reading this book gave me the term that I've been struggling to, to grasp for that particular thing, which is self-service API. Mm. And in fact, I used to always say like the, the bullet point under the open API's headline is that you should be, developers should be able to use your API without picking up the phone. There should be, there should be, even if it's internal, there should be no meeting that needs to happen with your IT yeah. department. They should just be able to figure it out. And, uh, and that self-service is perfect because it doesn't get into whether or not the public can see it or not, or if it's behind a firewall or if it's password protected, or if you're charging for access uh, but it sh- it should be self service. So I was like very very happy to stumble across yeah, that, that. That's a that's a good term for it. Cool. So was there a, so of of that stuff? It sounds like we're pretty much in agreement on everything. But was there yeah anything that you thought was missing or that you were like, well, I don't know. Um, what does he say about things like authentication? Because we run into issues like, well, you need to reset a password to the API and stuff like that. Does he have any any thoughts on on that sort of thing? Yeah, there's a whole chapter on security and user management. And uh, he talks about a couple of different approaches that kind of kind of depend on your situation. But Mm -hmm. but his ultimate sort of default is OAuth. Hmm. Which I don't quite have my head around. And I think the reason, so this might, this might prove that I have a fundamental misunderstanding of how OAuth 2 works. Because mm-hmm. I guess that's the version that everybody's on now. But I don't, I see OAuth as like um, a sort of a standard or a spec and a pattern for a sort of kind of user interface dance that has to happen in a web browser. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that's a deal breaker for me, but I guess I'm being kind of ivory tower about that. I, I feel like the API shouldn't need a website. You know yeah. what I mean? So, but he, anyway, he talks about, you know, 
you know, like here's a, here's a, like any security scheme, there's a significant caretaking requirement on the server side for any API operations important to that server side OAuth tokens to be protected from unauthorized access. And he talks about session based authentication, other authentication methods, username and password, and sort of pros and cons of each. Like I said, his default is OAuth, but I'm, I don't know if I'm feeling that, but I should give it a try. So yeah, he talks about all that stuff. He talks about, uh, XML and JSON attacks and data masking. So like returning, like there's probably data in your table that certain people can see and other people can't. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. um, putting in like a filter layer that, that screens out any of the stuff that's not relevant to the person who's making the call. Um, just, just tons of, I mean, in all of these, he, he hits on all these points and it's like a half a page or maybe a, a page or two on each. So it's really easy to like bang through it pretty quickly. Uh, he talks about rights management, which probably doesn't apply to, well, I suppose it probably applies to a lot of cases, you know, terms of use and rights management, who owns the content. Like if you're accepting content from, from people, it's not a read only API. Yeah. How do you, you deal with out who, who, yeah, <laughs> who owns the content? Yeah. Like attribution, like who, how do we, yeah, yeah, there's just like so many. It's so complicated. That that one little thing is so complicated. So just tons of good stuff in here. But yeah, the the authentication question is a good one. That's probably the one thing that I'm that I'm sort of scratching my head about. Because I think I don't know, I just like I've struggled with this on like like uh I've been working on that um hourglass API, for example. Mm -hmm. And I want it to be in keeping with these principles. I want it to be incredibly easy to play with it. Um, and that means no keys, no authentication. Like how do you, you know, user account stuff like all that, all that, none of that stuff enhances the experience. It's all barriers yeah. to entry, but really how do you create, <laughs> how do you do it? And I, I thought about it for a long time and came up with what I think is a kind of clever approach that allows people to play with the API and get a feel for what, how it works and what it's like without ever creating a login, but at the same time not, not stepping on other people's toes who are playing with it at the same time. And so like just to, in a nutshell, basically I create a session ID and that becomes their their like a air quotes user account that becomes their mm -hmm. user ID or their person ID. And once they, as soon as they hit the page in a particular browser, they become that person and everything they do with the API from that point on is as that person. Yeah. And you know, obviously that it fails if they go to another browser, um, you know, they would, it, all of a sudden they would lose all that data, but that's made perfectly clear when they're playing around with it, that they're, you know, it's not going to, not going to be sustained, but anyway, so then it's like, Oh, okay. Well, if we, if you take that up a notch, I don't know. I just, I really, I'm just a giant fan of the API token approach. Yeah, I am too. The OAuth is just such a, I mean, the last time I used OAuth, it was OAuth one and it was a complete cluster bang. It was like, it's really, really hard. You know, the terminology is confusing. Have you ever used it? I have, yeah, I've used it here and there, and I, I, I find it needlessly complex. Yeah. It feels like it feels like it's more, more complicated than it should be. I, and I, so here's the thing. I feel like it doesn't add much. So like it does give people like a, a familiar interface and you see it crop up everywhere. Like it's obviously popular. It gives people a familiar interface to say, like grant access to like your Gmail account or your Twitter account or something to a third party application to act on your behalf. And it creates a unique token that identifies you or and the app and, yeah. the, and the app and the, the like permissions that the app has. So you're not giving it mm -hmm. your, your password. Like obviously I, it's an anti-pattern to ask people for their Twitter password to, you know, in your Twitter client, although you do still see that in places, but, uh, you know, like, and, and I suppose the argument is if, 
in the Twitter example, let's say, you know, TweetDeck, I need to grant access to TweetDeck or Buffer. Buffer is a better example. Like Buffer is an app, a web app that you load sort of future tweets into and it tweets them on your behalf at a specified time. It's like it's like Hatch. It, it's like a very complicated version of Hatch. It also posts to Facebook and LinkedIn and a million other mm. things. So, and that, yeah. And uh, it... So in that example, I admit that as a user, the the experience would be um, maybe not so great if I had to go to Twitter. I I log into Twitter. I go to my account. I generate an API key for Buffer. I go over (laughs) to Buffer. I put it in. That's not great. And OAuth solves that problem. Yeah. Admittedly. So, but it's like, I don't know. But that is the exact pattern that, um, uh, what the heck was it? Twilio uses. It's like, oh, is it? Yeah. It's like, but Twilio is like not, Twilio is so different than Twitter though. Like, Twilio is for developers. That's not the yeah. kind of thing that, so you go into Twilio, you generate a, an API key, and yeah, you, yeah, you're right. It is, isn't it? Yeah. I, I just like that so much better, but maybe it's, Again, like I said before, maybe it's, it's I've got blinders on around my problem space, <laughs> my problem area. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know. Anyway, it's one of the most, it, that chapter is one of, if I recall correctly, is one of the most sort of, the, or the least prescriptive. Mm-hmm. It's very like, you know, you got to do what's appropriate to your application, but he definitely defaults to OAuth. Interesting. Yeah. So cool. Uh, and we were afraid we wouldn't have enough to fill an entire episode. <laughs> <laughs> I think we did it. Yeah. Did it again. Yep. All right, folks, that's our show for this week. I'm Jonathan Stark. And I'm Kelly Shaver. And we hope you join us again next week for the Niche Podcast. Bye. Bye.